he knows how to hit the viewer's buttons. Oh, yeah. And as I watch this... He was banging on mine. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7, a movie about the trial of seven, well, really eight defendants, including Bobby Seale, for crossing state lines to incite a riot during the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. The movie is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and stars Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. My guests for today's episode are my frequent collaborator, John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don will also join us to talk about the trial of the Chicago 7. As you may know, we've been on a bit of a hiatus. We've been relaxing a bit, taking a step back from putting these episodes together, and just kind of going at our own pace. We're doing this so the project continues to be enjoyable and something we like to do rather than something that we feel we have to do. We're trying to take a fresh look at the structure of the episodes and we're going to try out some changes and see how they work. If this is a podcast you enjoy, then please, please, please do us a few small favors. First, stay subscribed. That way, when the episodes are ready, they're just going to show up and be ready for you. We're going to be sporadic for now, but we want the episodes to be really, really good when you listen to them. Second, tell your friends about the podcast if you like it, and get them to subscribe. And third, send us some feedback. Uh, I mean, we don't do this just for us. We do enjoy doing it, but we want to hear from you. We want to know if the changes we're making are working for you. Is there something that we're not doing that you would like to hear in the podcast? Or is there something that we're doing that you'd like more of? You can find us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or you can visit our website at biopicsmostlysuck.com and send us a message. The Trial of the Chicago 7 gets a 7.8 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, an 89% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 76% rating from Metacritic. The movie has won a couple of awards so far, taking the Outstanding Cast Award at the Screen Actors Guild and the Best Screenplay for Aaron Sorkin at the Golden Globes this Sunday. It's up for five awards at the Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Sasha Baron Cohen, and Best Picture. How is The Trial of the Chicago 7 as a movie, and how is it as a medium to document the history of what happened in a dark period of American history? Sadly, a period that seems to be happening all over again. We're going to rate the movie as entertainment and as fact and give a grade at the end of the episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. And it's going to get pretty dark on the subject matter. This this really is not a laugh-a-minute episode, but 
It's a good episode to listen to. A lot of good information in here. So, if you're prepared, if you're ready, let's get started. And if not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. When it comes to the trial of the Chicago 7, it was very, very sorkin for me. Mm-hmm. And you define you you characterize Sorkin how Sorkin you have uh, some asides that give a lot more information on one thing uh-huh. than any human being would do in conversation. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. No one would say the police were using billy clubs, and oh, billy clubs are made out of the same material that baseball bats are made okay, out so of. Okay, so the asides, and yeah. It, no one talks like that in, in any way. Mm-hmm. Also. I think you had asked me earlier about what I think are trademarks of Aaron Sorkin's work. Yeah. And I always get a sense that his characters and whether this is him coming through his characters or just how he writes characters, that it's like a competition among the characters to be the smartest person in the room. Mm. So if you take West Wing, Mm -hmm. Bartlett was always the smartest person in the room. Was Bartlett smarter than Toby Ziegler, though? Well, he kept throwing mm. off things, factoids, and... Yeah, true. Well, that's uh, that's so. knowledgeable. That's not the same as smart. I, but I, I see what you're saying about the competition. But I, I yeah. in West Wing, I always thought Toby was the smartest guy in the room. It was Toby or Toby or CJ, like between the, the, yeah. them two. But but I think mm-hmm. they were... I think all of the characters were given that quality. It's... And yeah. when I think about it, every character who ever appeared on the West Wing was given that quality to one extent or another. And I think that's just a manifestation of Aaron Sorkin coming through in the characters. What is his background in terms of experience that would, or education that would drive him toward that kind of thing? Because I see it. I see what you're talking about. Intellectual shark tank that you're thrown into and mm-hmm. you, can, you can prove your you know prowess or whatever. With really flashy lines and nice references and, you know, all that. So I don't even, I don't know anything about Sorkin's background. I'm not very familiar with Sorkin's background either. I think he really came, well, I mean, he did A Few Good Men, Mm -hmm. which came before West Wing, didn't it? Yeah, that had to be. A Few Good Men was early 90s? Yeah, so he was a a screenwriter first and uh, and then moved into direction with, um, with Molly's Game. Molly's Game oh, yeah. was the first film he directed. Yeah. But yeah, I always just get that sense. I mean, it's enjoyable, but um, I, I think that quality went a little too far in Trial of Chicago 7. And I think he moderates it in other things. I would, I would disagree that it's always everyone wants to be the smartest person in the room. I think he uses some of the rapid fire speech and the tumbling sort of feel that some of the, the speeches have or some of the conversations have mm-hmm. to either assert someone's expertise or their knowledge or their surety even when they don't know what they're talking about mm. or their actual thought process when they're going through things. Well, I think this. Well, but if this happens, well, what if this happens? And to kind of walk you through that process, which is similar to what you were talking about and it's a different way of sharing that information, allowing them to go through the process. 
um, I do think there were more of those asides in Chicago 7. In, in a way, I think the style he has of dialogue with characters is very reminiscent of films from the 40s, where there's a lot of fast-paced patter taking place. Mm -hmm. Gilmore Girls took this on, too. Yes. With a lot of Rory and Lorelai stuff. Um, but I do enjoy that, even though it's wholly unrealistic. I think there's only one person that we really are in conversations like that with, and that would be Ethan. Yes. But uh, by and large, that's not how people talk. No. Um, yeah, but it's, it's interesting because like, I think it's like Dom was saying, there's a, it's a replication or, a, um, representation of someone's thought process in real time. Mm hmm. Working out. Yeah, that's, re that's really interesting. So Sorkin-y. Yeah, it's a good. I think you should keep Sorkin-y instead of Sorkin-esque. I like that better. I, I like Sorkin-y, too. Sorkin-y. Sor yeah. Sorkin-y works. Yeah. So your thoughts on the film? I loved it. Yeah. It was... It was... It was entertaining. It was intense. It it dragged you in to a certain amount of the complexity of the emotions of the time when people were trying to decide how to fight do you fight within a system or beyond the system and that was happening in many ways that was happening with civil rights and with the rights of blacks and other people of color in our country women's rights and and i i think that it was just important for that to come through so i just really enjoyed that that tussle between all these these different levels of engagement with within and beyond systems and how provocative something should be when you're not aiming for small incremental changes you're aiming for revolutionary changes i love the film it was so well made and i love the characters the, the casting i thought was brilliant sasha baron cohen as abby hoffman oh man that was i i he made me love Abby Hoffman for a few hours, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the way. The way it, I think the chronology of the film was really interesting too. The way it was set in the courtroom, and then you'd go to these scenes from, and yeah, it's very character heavy. You know, um, these scenes are filtered through. I'm trying to think of this in the context of the conversation we were just having. So you have all of these characters talking about and enacting notions of revolution and massive social upheaval and change and cultural um, shifts. Is it Sorkin in this in this way? Is he like presenting in a West Wing esque fashion, not not necessarily an intellectual competition, but a competition of ideas for the notion that. Does revolution happen from within a system? Do you change it within? Do you change it externally? Do you use violence? Do you use theater? How serious do you, are you? And it seemed like, it just in the context of that conversation, those characters in the courtroom were, in a sense, competing for that claim, ownership to, or maybe not ownership, but a claim to some kind of authority on that topic or subject. Like Hoffman, as Sasha Baron Cohen played him, came across i thought so well as someone who just in his public life was the ultimate middle finger to mm -hmm. and but a taunting middle finger you know not yeah. not a it was mean in certain parts but it is a this sarcastic snarky fuck you versus you know 
um, some of the other characters will perhaps go go about it more subversively mm-hmm. or something like that. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but it seems like you have this again, like a cast, a group of characters all spiraling or dancing around a, a central theme, you know. And as you were saying that about Abby Hoffman, it was occurring to me: uh, isn't Abby Hoffman really just a much less refined Sasha Baron Cohen? <laughs> because what Sasha Baron Cohen does yeah. with Borat and with yeah. Ali G is a middle finger to establishment that's upending that status quo. But it's much more sophisticated. That's yes. what I'm saying. Yeah. Abby Hoffman is like a <laughs> cartoon character almost. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's like the cartoon character. You see the the shape going through the walls yeah. as they're racing through. Yeah. There's this, so there's the, his biography for the hell of it, The Life and Times of Abby Hoffman. Biographer, I'm trying to remember the biographer's name. It's a really good biography. But he talks about that with Hoffman, um, this kind of like cartoonish, almost um, caricature of an image that he that he crafted and honed and created that was very much at odds with who who the man was privately. Yeah, which was uh, mm-hmm. fascinating. The other thing I think that came through in the movie for me, which I think is important and, and it resonates in today's world, is the heaviness of the decisions that regardless of where exactly you were in that spectrum of how you were going to take action, our government and our institutions had already decided how they were going to respond across the board. Didn't matter where you were. And that the, the implications of what it means that regardless of whether you try to work within and try to be peaceful or are immediately ready for violence or to be very provocative you know that law enforcement is going to show up in riot gear and some of them are looking for an excuse just to bust your head open and that that fear and he made it very palpable and i think if you've ever been to any that of the protests or in the last year you can feel that if on you go try there even Chicago 7 with the most peaceful like intentions podcast, and please subscribe law using your favorite podcasting platform we are literally everywhere vehicles. You can find all of the sources we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash trial of the Chicago 7. I usually throw in some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For the trial of the Chicago 7, there are videos of Rennie Davis and David Dellinger in the time leading up to the protests and a video of Bobby Seal talking about his experience in the courtroom. As I mentioned, this was the first of our two-part episode about the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7. uh, We will be back next week on the other side of the Oscars to talk about the awards the film won or lost, and then we're going to get right back into talking about The Trial, and we're also going to talk about what happened to the Chicago 7 after the trial ended. How are we doing with this project? Go like us at Facebook and Twitter at the handle that mostly suck, or send us your feedback through our website biopicsmostlysuck.com and you can let us know which movies you would like us to use for an episode and we'll share the true story behind that that wasn't the perspective of the film based on a true story it seems like the film was really playing on an us versus them uh, mentality in terms of and again but it makes sense I mean you think about 68 what what were they chanting outside of the the whole world is watching the mm-hmm. whole world is watching the whole world is watching and it's like oh man this gets into dicey territory but it's 
if you want to portray the police and the National Guard, et cetera, as, and the lawyers, at the t- et cetera, as a monolith, right? As a singular entity that operates kind of with one consciousness in mind. Seeing the, the footage from, you know, documentaries and news footage is just, it's, it's kind of hard not to see them that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the way that Sorkin pre- painted in the film, it's very, I, I you'd be hard pressed to, sympathize with the police in any or the lawyers in any, i mean in any sense of the word that would be tough yeah and i think where where i developed an offense to it in doing the research is in in the storytelling he changes facts that occurred in real life in order to support that perspective and that's where my concern is is because for people who are watching this uh, i mean we've talked before the 60s are romanticized enough as they are. Yeah. That this was a great time and it was a good fight. And Everybody those, was naked and fucking and, you know, yeah. And those who were there will tell you, no, it was a terrible time. Yeah. Uh, that I think in order to take the events that really happened and change them in order to support a certain point of view to the extent Sorkin does that we'll talk about in depth is really to do a disservice to the time and... I think what we'll see in our discussion is also to do a disservice to those people who are being held up as heroes in the storyline of the movie. Yeah, and I, I said periodization is always really, for me at least, it's just it, to to reduce an a year or an era to a singular fight or a singular cause, right, or a singular theme. It just seems really unrealistic. And like you were saying, it's funny because I was having a conversation with an older gentleman who was going to be drafted. And, you know, he, he echoed the same thing. He said, the stakes were real. It was very real. It was a very real possibility that I was going to be drafted and sent off to Vietnam to fight. And he, and he said, I would have at the time because I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't understand the war, but I thought it was a patriotic duty. That's the that's the severe danger in romanticizing the late sixties. Mm-hmm. Like fuck, man, you want to you want to idealize being young and at any second your your lottery number could come up and yep. you're going to be shipped overseas. I mean, come the fuck on, man. But yeah, those that that sixty nineteen sixty seven part of the sixties tends to win out, right? That yeah. summer of love and everyone's on acid listening to Sergeant Pepper's, and that's that's one small corner. Of some pretty, pretty privileged people too. Let's yeah. talk about that, right? I mean, you know, most definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't even know where I was going with that, but it's just the whole notion of periodization, you know, and like in de- defining eras is just it really rings problematic for me. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's one of the concerns that we've talked about before is that these tend to be the only message that the viewer may get. Um, and that doesn't dissuade me from watching these movies, but I always want to reinforce to people the importance of learning more. Because to your point, I was having a conversation with some folks not too long ago, and they're they're younger than me. And uh, we were talking about the protests against the Vietnam War. And, you know, it, it used to be that it was very romanticized, that it was the young people fighting for their right to not die. And now... 
the narrative is going completely to the other side where it was, oh, all they were doing was spitting on the GIs that came back and they were only being vitriolic baby toward them, baby that, killers yeah. and all that. And not to say that wasn't happening in some places or with a minority of the people who were protesting, but in large part, those protesters were coming from neighborhoods like mine because our guys were poor. Their draft numbers were coming up. Their moms were calling our moms and saying, this person died. My baby is dead. How do you talk to someone who is maybe in her 40s, who has just lost her 19-year-old kid for a war that she doesn't understand? And at that time, people already knew punk shitheads like Trump were getting their deferments by paying it off. And our guys were dying in disproportionate numbers because the, that's what privilege looked like at that time. Hmm. They were, they were marching to protect the guys in our neighborhoods and saying that their lives are not worth less. That puts an immediate visceral component or adds an, a component that's, that's immediate, which I, I, I think of uh, the protests, for the Iraq War mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember. I remember even being in school, and everyone had a goddamn opinion, which is fine. But the comparison to Vietnam, I get it in the sense of the war, but not in the sense of you weren't going to be drafted. Yeah, I mean, come on, man. The consequences weren't. It, you're not marching in your neighborhood to protect your neighborhood. You're marching for an abstraction in some senses, you know. Although I would say we still disproportionately send our poor. Oh yeah. Because what's what's their ticket out sometimes? Yeah. They go mm -hmm. to, to into the military for a college or for a career they couldn't otherwise get or to escape poverty. You know? Serge Tinkian. Why do we always send the poor? There's a reason. We consider yeah. them expendable in this country. Yeah. And, and some of what we're talking about here I think plays into what Sorkin did with the story because he knows how to hit the viewer's buttons. Oh, yeah. And as I watch this... He's banging on mine. <laughs> <laughs> and like as that. I watch this, I could feel my buttons being pushed. And I wonder how much of that was the release of this coming in October of 2020. Oh, yeah. Being just on the heels of the protest that took place during that same summer. And I think that's an, uh, a good point to say, because we're going to talk about certain liberties that Sorkin took with the story, one could watch this thinking he played on those heightened emotions based on those protests against social injustice. And from my research, what I found is very few changes were made to the film post-production. Because by the time those protests happened, the film was already shot. Uh, and the only changes made during post-production was in the segment of Fred Hampton's killing. The still photos that you see shown in the film are still photos from the real-life killing of Fred Hampton. Mm -hmm. The smiling police officers, the bullet holes in the walls, etc. But otherwise, Sorkin did not tailor this to play on the emotions that came out of the summer of 2020. When did he write it? He was asked by... Spielberg to write it in 06. Okay, so it had been brewing. 
And at the time, Spielberg asked him if he would write a movie based on the Chicago 7. He said, great. And then he went to research who the Chicago 7 were. <laughs> that seems so weird to me because yeah. he's a bit older than we are, isn't he? But is he How is- do you not know who the Chicago 7 are? I mean, even if you weren't very tapped into politics, how... <sighs> Is he a guy though that is he a writer or a director that because he comes across like if I watch again I'll just put the West Wing as a reference point or even even this film so is Sorkin a guy that is a serious expert in these small this this wouldn't be small but in these in these areas when he has to research research them for a film mm-hmm. or when he has to research them for a television show mm-hmm. that's surprising that Sorkin who are the Chicago Seven I would think that he'd be like fuck yeah, let's make the movie today, you know? No, and I think what you're talking about circles back to that smartest guy in the room thing. Huh, yeah. Oh. Do, you, do we know any Hollywood stories about what Sorkin is is like um, as a person, as a director? No, I've seen a couple interviews with him. Okay. And uh, I would say in interviews, Sorkin comes across like his characters do I was gonna ask. on the page. Very, very much in that way. And, and I think this really was highlighted with Molly's game and the character of Joffe played by mm. Idris Elba in that. Yeah. Ooh. Idris mm. Elba. Idris Elba. That's when I first realized he tends to channel himself through multiple characters or th- certain characters. I think in Chicago seven, that whole speech Hayden gives to Abby Hoffman about uh. his concern about uh, the movement being tied so much to Abby Hoffman I that sounds very much like Sorkin's concerns more than anything Hayden would say. Typically, film critics and people who make documentaries don't weigh in too heavily on the fact and fiction of a film based on real events because it's not really their purview. Film critics aren't there to talk about the truth of something. They're there to talk about the art of a film. However, there's a large number of quotes that came out from critics about the liberties taken by Sorkin. Jeremy Kagan, who is the writer and director of the 1980 film Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago Eight, said Sorkin is a gifted director and a brilliant writer, but I am concerned that the generations who did not live through this time will now think of this version as what happened. Was his movie a documentary? His movie was a documentary, yeah. It wasn't, and it isn't. It is an interpretation. Well, and I think part of that goes to what I was talking about is that that feeling of a moment rather than the facts of the moment. Because I think what stuck out for me so much in this movie was that sense of enraged hopelessness on behalf of Bobby Seale. And I was watching a fictionalized account and it felt with very little difference the same way I felt and continue to feel every time I see the footage of George Floyd. This sense that there is such deep-rooted institutionalized injustice in this country that people refuse to recognize and, and the helplessness when someone is standing by. And you know if you act, it's going to make it worse. But if you don't act someone is going to be irreparably harmed or die. Um, And I think that's the power of Sorkin's works. I think you're going to be more upset about what happened in real life than what Sorkin wrote. 
It's an interesting point, though, because it reminds me of it reminds me a lot of the West Wing in the sense not not the content of the point that you're making, but the the notion that Sorkin puts you into uh, emotional truths and what it feels like. Because didn't he he observed um, didn't he get to go to Clinton's White House and tell people around and he gives he puts you in a scene or in a in a in a moment very well whether it's real or not, the feelings that are elicited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs writes, Sorkin takes creative liberties with history that end up distorting it. Well, I will certainly take what anyone says from Current Affairs with <laughs> all the weight it is due. That's still a thing? Apparently. Matthew Decim at Slate offers a comparison of some of the film's events and characters to the actual history and suggests Sorkin, quote, plays pretty freely with characters and events to ensure his clockwork screenplay hits exactly the right beats in exactly the right order. Oh, can you not hear envy in that? Yeah. Dripping. Just. I wish I could write a good movie. (laughs) Mine's just as good. Take my screenplay. Yeah. In a rare instance, we have the filmmaker setting the goal for themselves. You know, usually when we come to these things, they receive criticism for taking liberties, and the response is, it's not a documentary, it's not real life, etc. Here is what Sorkin said about Trial of the Chicago 7. He said, quote, Before a film can be anything else, relevant or persuasive or important, it has to be good. It has to tend to the rules of drama and filmmaking. So I'm thinking about the audience experience. This isn't a biopic. You will get the essence of these real-life people and the kernel of who they are as human beings, not historical facts. So what's the critic's beef? You know, I think as we go deeper into what really happened, I think that'll become apparent. Okay. Okay. I also want to slip in some perspectives I found from Berkeley locals who knew the defendants well. Some of them were at the trial every day, and they shared with the Berkeley side the following comments. Steve Wasserman was 17 at the time, and he said of the film, I wanted desperately to like it. I respect the earnestness. I'm hostage to the reality of those times. This felt appallingly fictive and difficult to watch and more Mm -hmm. caricature than anything else tarting it up in a way that was contrary to the sense of the times. And then Paul Glessman was a 22-year-old freelance journalist, and he took exception with how Sorkin distorted the motivation of the Chicago 7 by chalking it up to psychological issues. There's that scene between Hayden and Seal in prison, and Seal makes the comment about uh, Hayden's father as being the reason why he's doing what he's doing, daddy issues. And rather than the fact that they did not like the fact that Americans and Vietnamese were dying in the war. So those are criticisms from people who uh, make documentaries on this topic, who write about film, and who actually knew the people involved and were present at the trial. I want to give that not to presuppose what the final result might be in our discussion, but just to give some context around what some of the feelings are out there about the film. Now, because this film covers a lot of ground and is told in present tense and in flashback, I have four separate areas I'd like to discuss with both of you. The background of the Chicago 7. Where did these individuals come from in order to reach this point? What happened during the demonstrations? 
what happened during the trial. And then lastly, I want to talk about what happened to the defendants after the trial. Where did they go in their lives? Are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the players. What was in the movie? Vietnam War protesters traveled to Chicago to protest the selection of the Democratic nominee in 1968. Clashes between the protesters and the police were seen worldwide, and seven protesters and the head of the Black Panther Party were arrested and charged with traveling across state lines with the intention of starting a riot. The film shows Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman as being at odds with each other over their different approaches to liberal philosophies. Well, what really happened? The Chicago 7, whom we listed at the opening of this episode, staged a protest with a focus on the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey. The major groups who were involved included members of the Youth International Party, also known as the Yippies, which were led by Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, and the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, also known as MOBE, which was led by David Dellinger, with Rennie Davis and Tom Hayden coordinating the Chicago demonstrations. So let's talk a little bit about the background of these members who make up these groups. David Dellinger was a pacifist and a conscientious objector from World War II, which is mentioned in the movie, and I do love that line that Sorkin gives Kunstler, which is, you didn't want to fight in World War II? I want to punch you. <laughs> <laughs> While serving time in prison for the charge of being a conscientious objector, Dellinger and other conscientious objectors protested the segregated dining hall. The halls were integrated as a result of these protests. He led peaceful protests and hunger strikes and had friendships and contacts with Eleanor Roosevelt, Ho Chi Minh, Martin Luther King Jr., and Fred Hampton, whom he admired. Dellinger helped to bring MLK into the forefront of the anti-war movement. Wow. And there's Eleanor Roosevelt once again. Her fingerprint is just mm -hmm. everywhere. And um, it's just in so many of these, of these stories, it's a remarkable, remarkable first lady. I would love, I don't know if there's been a biopic made of her, but I would love to have an excuse to talk about her and research oh, yeah. her. Yeah. She, she is a badass. Yeah. Uh, Rennie Davis, who was with Moab, became involved in the group Students for a Democratic Society. He became the national director of their community organizing programs. He was a nonviolent leader with a calm demeanor. Abby Hoffman spent his school days playing pranks, vandalizing property, and calling teachers by their first names. When he wrote a paper about why God does not exist, with the main thesis being that if he did, there would not be any suffering in the world, the teacher ripped up the paper and called Hoffman a communist punk. <laughs> Hoffman responded by jumping on the teacher and fighting him until he was pulled off the teacher and restrained. Needless to say, he was expelled. In the film, the character of Hoffman says he went to Brandeis. This is true. One of his professors was noted psychologist Abraham Maslow. which you No way! Oh, wow. Okay. You may remember that from your school days as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Hoffman earned a BA in psychology at Brandeis and a master's in psychology at Berkeley. Hoffman was involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and organized Liberty House, 
which sold items to support the fight for civil rights in the southern states. In San Francisco in 1966, Hoffman was part of a group called the Diggers, a group of activists and street theater actors. He studied their ideology, and when he returned to New York, he wrote a book about it, which did not make the group too happy. According to the co-founder of the Diggers, Peter Coyote, and if that oh. name sounds familiar, we are talking about the actor Peter Coyote. Huh. This is what Peter Coyote said. Abby, who was a friend of mine, was always a media junkie. We explained everything to those guys, and they violated everything we taught them. Abby went back, and the first thing he did was publish a book with his picture on it that blew the hustle of every poor person on the Lower East Side by describing every free scam then current in New York, which were then sucked dry by disaffected kids from Scarsdale. And Don, to those people who might not be familiar with New York area and Scarsdale, what does that reference to Scarsdale mean? That means that we're a bunch of spoiled white kids. Who took what was being used by poor disaffected people. Yes. Scarsdale surprise, baby. Yeah. What's that? The Scarsdale diet. Ah, okay. Okay. A mention is made in the movie about Abby Hoffman trying to levitate the Pentagon. That happened during a demonstration that was organized by David Dellinger and Mope. Dellinger asked Jerry Rubin to help with organizing the demonstration. 100,000 people showed up at the Lincoln Memorial and then walked across the Arlington Bridge to the Pentagon. Hoffman led the effort to levitate the Pentagon into space, while Allen Ginsberg led the crowd into Betten Chance. Elementary penguins singing Hare Krishna. From I Am the Walrus, that is Lennon taking a direct stab at Allen Ginsberg. Is that what that, that is? That is exactly Elementary Penguin singing Hare Krishna. I did not know that was a Ginsberg reference. Absolutely. Yep. It's ironic that Hoffman started his protest work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because while the film places the fracture in the group between Hayden and Hoffman, the real fracture was between Hoffman and Moeb. Hoffman did not like their peaceful approach to demonstrations. Hoffman disliked their approach to the extent that while they were in Chicago, Hoffman met with the Blackstone Rangers, Chicago's most powerful and sophisticated street organization, and asked them to bring weapons to Lincoln Park. Wow. Yeah, the the distinction or discrepancies between Abby Hoffman's public image and the ethos that he espoused and his lived existence are stark and mm -hmm. disturbing, to say the least. Yeah. Tom Hayden was a protester to the degree that when he was the editor of his high school paper and about to graduate, he used his farewell column to send a message. He used the first letter of each successive paragraph to spell, go to hell. <laughs> he was banned from attending the graduation ceremony. Juvenile, but fabulous. He became a member of, again, Students for a Democratic Society when he followed a girl into the group. Now, putting it this way makes him sound shallow. I should say the woman in question, Sandra Kaysen, was asked to join the group on the spot when she beat back a refusal by the staff at the University of Michigan to allow sit-ins against racial justice. They were married a year later. Wow. Hayden became a freedom writer in 1961 and was beaten by a white mob. Being a freedom writer landed him in jail, where he started writing the Students for a Democratic Society manifesto. 
He also co-authored Sex and Caste, which ushered in the second wave of feminism. He joined Moeb in 1968. I've not read that. I will have to. The movie shows Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman being in conflict with their approach to social justice, but they were not that far apart in their ideologies. Hayden had many instances where he made speeches with incendiary comments, and the let the blood flow comment was not an outlier. Hayden was known to fire up a crowd, and during the trial he gave a short speech at the Days of Rage event that was coordinated by the Weathermen. Hoffman and other members of the Chicago 7 also attended, but left without speaking. Hayden was also not as preppy in his style of dress as the film shows. Rennie Davis said that Hayden would wear mod-style clothing and a fake goatee at times. At these times, (laughs) Davis would tell him he looks ridiculous. A fake goatee. (laughs) Jerry Rubin... I'm sorry, for aesthetics? For aesthetic purposes? I don't know. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's just odd. A goatee, nothing else. No mustache, no beard, not just... A fake goatee. A fake goatee. Okay. All right. Jerry Rubin was born and raised in Cincinnati. He attended Oberlin College, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and obtained a degree in history from the University of Cincinnati. He attended UC Berkeley, but dropped out in 1964 to focus on social activism. He ran for the mayor of Berkeley on a platform that advocated black power, the legalization of marijuana, and an end to the war in Vietnam. He got 20% of the vote. He founded the Youth International Party with Abby Hoffman with a focus of making radical events more entertaining in order to receive media coverage. Mm -hmm. When he was called before Congress to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, he did not plead the fifth as was common. He appeared in a rented 18th century revolutionary costume and claimed to be a descendant of Jefferson and Payton. He blew soap bubbles and showed no worry nor concern as he was asked about his communist affiliations. He was page one news for a couple of days. John Freund earned a Ph.D. in chemistry in 1967, and Lee Renner earned a master's degree in social work and was the only member of the Chicago 7 to come from Chicago. In the film, the reason for them being at the defense table is explained away as a prosecution tactic, an effort by the prosecution to help the jurors feel better about convicting the other five defendants. Mm, mm-hmm. But Freunds and Renner were at the defendant's table because they were charged with teaching protesters how to make Molotov cocktails. <laughs> you see, <laughs> chemistry comes in handy. It's funny oh. how that works. And this is something the film shows Jerry Rubin doing. Hmm. Lastly, we have Bobby Seale who lived in poverty as his family moved around Texas and later to Oakland, California. He dropped out of high school to join the Air Force and was court-martialed and given a bad conduct charge for fighting with a commanding officer. Seal worked as a sheet metal worker at just about every aerospace plant that existed while working to earn his high school diploma at night. Seal went to college to become an engineer, but in his words... Quote, got shifted right away because I became interested in American black history and trying to solve some problems. He joined the Afro-American Association, AAA, a group focused on black separatism. Seal met Huey P. Newton through the AAA and began working with the North Oakland Neighborhood Anti-Poverty Center. Here he met Bobby Hutton, who became the first recruit into the Black Panthers. So there we go. We have the paths that took this group of people into Chicago, 
Uh, anything interesting you find that you didn't know before or anyone highlighted that you didn't find was highlighted enough in the film? The Hayden background is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, uh, especially as it was depicted in the film, he was, he, he almost came off as, um, I don't want to say priggish, but in comparison to Hoffman, they, they seem to be set up as, yeah, in opposition to one another. Yeah. Hoffman seems to be presented as a rock star in the group. You know, drugs and fucking, and yeah. whereas Hayden comes through as trying to get shit done, like the cl- like the clean cut, stern moralist kind of, you know, in, in the wild Dionysian uh, Abby Hoffman kind yeah. of guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone if, who you think would be within the system right. to change it, but he is simultaneously apparently not inside the system. No, I I just think that they are all important people to know while they may have been the high profile leaders that there were many people on the ground making similar efforts. I mean, I would have liked to learn more about what Bobby seal was doing, but it really wasn't relevant to the movie. I just, I just think the black Panthers did so much for this country and I just keep hoping to see more about it. Uh, But this probably wasn't the movie for it. Well, I remember that, um, you guys both see the U.S. versus John Lennon? Yes. Yep. When John Lennon brought Bobby Seale onto, whose program was it? Was it Dick Cavett? I'm tri- no, that would have been too early. Um, um, no, it wouldn't have been too early. Uh, I can't remember the program, but he brought John Lennon, and, yeah. John Lennon and Yoko. Said, but my, I mean, my introduction to Bobby Seale was through history books, but then I remember seeing that footage and Lennon's introduction was so interesting. He says, you know, we, we met him, we, we, we hung out and he's, he's a great guy. He's a cool guy. He's a really nice guy. And, and it's just this, the counter to every caricature that, you know, the American public had painted and and projected onto Bobby Seale. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think what you're talking about, John is similar to what I was talking about, about how, uh, protesters were depicted in 1990 which Mm -hmm. is a shorthand because Mm -hmm. if you're from the black panthers you must be angry militant militant absolutely in fact we'll talk more about what bobby seal did but he actually put out a cookbook in the 1990s what is it called cooking with bobby seal (laughs) or barbecuing with bobby (laughs) seal that's awesome and it's hard to get a copy of this it's not in print but the only recipe i could find comes from the AARP website. Wait a second. The AARP has embraced Bobby Seal? Ah, there's no mention of him being in the Black Panthers. Okay. What? At all. Was so that... this is just this guy with a cookbook? This guy with a cookbook. <laughs> Was that by Bobby Seal's design or did the AARP not want to mention that he was part of it's... the Black Panthers? I mean, it's not a secret. The paragraph that is above the uh, recipe itself Mm -hmm. is promoting his cookbook, which had just come out at that time. And it mentions Bobby Seale. It mentions his take on barbecuing. And it makes no mention that he was a founder of the Black Panthers. That would probably cause widespread heart attacks instantaneously, <laughs> right? Like, uh, you know, you're going through that. What, what are we going to have tonight? Oh, yeah. oh look yeah. at the Serb marinade recipe. What? <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and talk about the altercations between demonstrators and the police. What's shown in the movie is that demonstrators are 
shown being unarmed with the exception of a few glass bottles that land in front of officers. Officers are seen as being antagonistic to the protesters, including when they take over a hill in Grant Park. The police club a young man who climbed a flagpole in the park, prompting Tom Hayden to yell, If our blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the city. Well, what really happened? As we mentioned, the protesters in Lincoln Park were led by two separate groups, the National Mobilization to End the War in Vietnam, MOBE, and the Youth International Party, the Yippies. MOBE was the group who was politically focused, and the Yippies promoted an uninhibited lifestyle. The Black Panther Party and the Christian Leadership Conference were also in town to demonstrate against racism in the American parties and politics. MOBE made the decision to hold demonstrations and teach-ins. The Yippies' plan was to hold a festival of life and have bands playing. Their plan was to mock the convention and nominate a pig, Pigasus the Immortal, as their presidential candidate, and hold a fuckin'. They promoted it with the following flyer. Psychedelic, long-haired, mutant, jism, peace leftist will consort with known dope fiend. <laughs> spilling out onto the sidewalk in poor nape disarray each afternoon. 250 rebel coxmen under secret vows are on a 24-hour alert to get the pants off the daughters and wives and kept women of the convention delegates. Mayor Richard Daley and Chicago officials looked at the convention as an opportunity to promote Chicago to the world. And having protesters leading fuck-ins was not exactly the image they wanted Chicago to have. Requests from the yippies to allow people to sleep in the city parks were rejected, and an 11 p.m. curfew was to be enforced. The city's 12,000 police officers were put on 12-hour shifts to enforce the curfew. 7,500 army troops and 6,000 National Guard troops were requested by Daly to keep order. Moab filed an injunction to force the city to waive the curfew. It was denied. Splits started to occur within the groups. Jerry Rubin favored Biden by the curfew, while Abby Hoffman did not. On August 24th, as police tried to clear the park, demonstrations became violent and tear gas was thrown. Serious altercations that night were avoided, thanks to Allen Ginsberg leading the protesters in chanting a mantra. The night of August 25th was supposed to be the Festival of Life, the event coordinated by the Yippies. Only one band showed up. MC5. You know MC5? Nice. Kick out the jams. And they were afraid to take the stage because they thought the police would destroy their sound system. At 11 p.m., police tried to clear the park of 3,000 attendees, but there were more billy clubs and tear gas. It was the local greasers more than out-of-town protesters who started throwing things at police cars. This is the night that Tom Hayden was arrested for letting the air out of the tires of a police car. Speaking of billy clubs, Sorkin Mm. does that very Sorkin thing where a character has to comment on what an item is made of or how it is constructed. Mm -hmm. Very Toby. This airplane is made of a... I know this because And you're telling me that my cell phone my this, this phone is going to uh-huh. stop this into yeah. yeah. Oh god, that's a great yeah. fucking scene. Sorry. Yeah. Sasha Baron Cohn as Abby Hoffman talks about Billy Clubs during his stand up and makes the comment they are made from the same wood as baseball bats. That this is possibly true. So I did some research on it because I did it for Molly's game and that took me a 
freaking week to just research that two-minute ski scene. But for this, it was relatively quick. But I found out some interesting things. Billy clubs are made out of hickory. In the early days of baseball, baseball bats were made out of hickory. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because players had to supply their own bats. There was no regulation for bats. Not all bats were round. If they used an axe handle, it would be a little flatter. Mm -hmm. Or they might pull the spoke out of a wagon wheel and shape it a little bit into a bat. But the first bats were made out of hickory. Then ash became most popular. Then sugar maple became popular as well. So nowadays it's ash and then sugar maple. But hickory is starting to make a comeback because Hickory bats are so durable that an early baseball player, Joe Sewell, he used his same bat for his entire career, 1920 to 1933. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so when you say they're coming back, do you mean in the context of the time period we're talking about, or you mean now they're coming back? Uh, now young players are starting to use hickory, hickory bats again. In honor of the, of the tradition or because of the, the material? Because of the material, okay. they're more durable. Okay. You know, you don't you don't have much of a chance of a hickory bat breaking. However, they are heavier. That's yeah, the I was going to say that. Yeah. So that's the trade-off. They're heavier and more durable, but ash is lighter. So billy clubs made out of the same material as baseball bats. Kind of true on that one. But back to Lincoln Park. The morning of August 27th brought chants, prayers, and meditation led by Allen Ginsberg. Bobby Seale showed up in Lincoln Park on this morning to address a crowd of 2,000 people. His speech, which contained language advocating a violent response towards the police, was the basis of the case against him. That evening, 4,000 people gathered in the Chicago Coliseum to hear David Ellinger, folk singer Phil Ox, author William Burroughs, and other members of the peace movement. That's where the jism comes from, I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. You had naked lunch, it's like uh, jism, jism, jisms, mm. jisms flying everywhere. I've, I was thinking of Burroughs when you read the fucking description. Mm. Yeah. Back in Lincoln Park, the nightly routine of clubbing and tear gassing commenced at 11 p.m. Some protesters, some protesters damaged vehicles and smashed shop windows in response. Wednesday, August 28th, is what you see portrayed in the film. Abby Hoffman was arrested for indecency while having breakfast for writing the word fuck across his forehead. He said he did it to keep the media from photographing him. Which, I don't know, I never thought Abby Hoffman took pains to keep the media from photographing him. Not that I'm aware of. No, that feels like horse shit. At 3 p.m., Dellinger, Seal, Davis, and Hayden addressed 10 to 15,000 people at the band shell in Lincoln Park, directly across the street from the Chicago Hilton, where the convention was being held. For the next piece, the timeline is important because it differs from Sorkin's depiction in the film. First, Tom Hayden says, make sure that if blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the city. But the rest of his quote is, if we're going to be disrupted and violated, let the whole stinking city be disrupted. I'll see you in the streets. It should be noted that there was no discussion about the statement that took place during the trial. And there was no tape of Hayden saying the statement ever introduced into evidence during the trial. Then, someone climbs a flagpole to replace the American flag with a communist flag. Police move towards the flagpole 
while being pelted with bags of urine and other items. Moab had people in the role of marshals, whose job was to move in and try to calm down the crowd. The police viewed this movement as further provocation and started clubbing anyone within reach. Rennie Davis was trying to calm the crowd when one of the officers saw him and yelled, Get Davis, and clubbed him. Davis was taken to the hospital and was moved around by the staff while he was being treated because the officers were trying to arrest him in the hospital. Staff smuggled, wow. staff smuggled Davis out of the hospital to stay with some friends. The Democratic Convention nominated Hubert Humphrey and police stopped a nighttime march of 1,500 people. This is what you also see depicted in the film and attacked them with billy clubs and tear gas. Now, it should be noted that protesters were throwing certain items at the police as well. I mentioned bags of urine, but protesters were also showing up with golf balls with nails driven through them, and those were being thrown into the police lines as well. Also on this Thursday, comedian Dick Gregory and Senator Eugene McCarthy addressed the crowd. Thursday is also the day when John Freund's and Lee Weiner met with undercover officer Erwin Block. Freund's allegedly said that the protesters needed more ammunition against the police. Weiner suggested using Molotov cocktails and picking a target in the loop to bomb. Weiner told Bach and others to get sand, rags, bottles, and gasoline to make Molotov cocktails. Protesters charged the hill and climbed on top of the statue of General John Logan in the afternoon. The police were not on the scene at this time. The police arrived afterwards to clear the area. In physically dragging protesters off of the statue, they broke a young man's leg in the process. It should be noted that this battle on the hill was also not mentioned at all during the trial. Yeah, so what did they actually do to that young man? Because just pulling mm-hmm. someone off a statue will mm-hmm. not break their leg. Might have just been the direction his leg wound up going as they grabbed, or I don't know. There's no description of what happened, just that someone's leg broke in the process. <laughs> it just broke. Well, I mean, if people are squirming around, your leg can go an odd direction. It can happen sometimes. Yeah, he fell on a knife five times. Uh, Again, no description of how his leg broke, but Mm -hmm. his leg broke in the process. I think the point here is the movie shows that the police took the hill in order to create a provocation with the protesters. Yes. And in real life, that did not take place. There were no police on the scene when the protesters went up that hill. Have you seen the... um debates between uh William F Buckley and Gore Vidal regarding the convention. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think this is interesting because uh William Buckley kept calling the I think he was referring to when the American flag was replaced with the VC flag a provocative act, which is interesting that you know you're, you're noting the police creating the pro- the provocative context. Uh, for this all to unfold. And I remember Gore Vidal's great response is, it's not a provocative act. You have the freedom to take any position you like in this country. It should be noted how the roles of women in the anti-war movement are not really shown in the film. Oh, can we talk about this in the context of Abby Hoffman's life? (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I hate this shit. I hate... I'm sorry to go. No, no, let me table promoting women in the movement. Go ahead with Abby Hoffman. Just the counterculture fucking 
who's got the total bougie life at home with the wife serving him, living like a patriarch. I mean, give me a fucking break. Give me a fucking break. That's the, that's the only argument that I can see in a more sinister way that Abby Hoffman could, it's going down a dark path, that it would be to Abby Hoffman's ultimate advantage if there were violence in, at the convention, because he would make the group into martyrs. At their expense, not his fucking expense, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, you good? I'm good. I just had to get it off my chest. No problem. I understand. Yeah. We're here for you, John. Thank you. Okay. It should be noted how the roles of women in the anti-war movement are not really shown in the film. There is one woman, Bernadine, who is answering phones in the conspiracy trial <laughs> office. This is likely Bernadine Ray Dorn, who managed the trial office for a few weeks until a man replaced her in the role. She was a leader in the Weathermen and later founded the Weather Underground. I want to hear her story. Exactly. That's why I mention it. Anyone listening out there, make a biopic on Bernadine Ray Dorn. I always love to see strong women brought to the forefront. The, it should be called Which Way the Wind Blows. That would be a oh, great there documentary you go. title. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Well, the Weathermen, it's Raining Justice. Yeah. I was going to say because you don't need a weatherman, you know. To know, to know which way the wind blows. There we go. Anything to add on demonstrations? Any thoughts? No, I just keep I I just keep going back to not the film but the new the actual footage. Was was that Walter Cronkite who reported that 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 evening? I think so. Oh, just the brutality of those images mm-hmm. were. I mean, just beyond. It's beyond imaginable. Well, and the thing that chills me in my research is that the police seeing people from Mobe who are there to try to keep the peace and viewing them as a further provocation. And I don't know if that has to do with communication. I don't know if that has to do with ill intent on the police department. But when an officer yells, get Davis, I would say it leads towards ill intent. And was that accurate? That was accurate. Yeah. I have have the sources for that. Yeah. I mean, and to me, that just lends more to Daly's whole intention of further provoking anyone who was there, because if they had left Mob alone, but given the fact that they also went after Mob, mm-hmm. knowing that they had permits, knowing that they had specifically reached out and said, we are here to be here peacefully and to promote mm-hmm. peace within ranks of others who are here. And the police chose to go after them. Well, I think by that time the groups are mixed and you really don't know who's who. I'm not saying that the group, that the police were targeting one over the other, but a protester was a protester by that point. But if they said that they, that if they made a specific explicit statement that they were about to target Davis, mm-hmm. yeah. then I, I think that speaks volumes more than anything else. Yeah. It gave them the opportunity to go after a conscientious objector, someone who is a pacifist. Yeah. And, and I'm going to have some video on the website, which shows a press conference with Dellinger and Rennie Davis. Talking. Oh, wait, Dellinger was the pacifist. Dellinger was the pacifist. So who was Davis? I'm getting uh, Rennie Davis was also with Moab. Okay. Moab, so, yeah. yeah. And, and this video shows them at a press conference uh, ahead of the convention talking about the frustrations about trying to secure permits from the Chicago city. 
That wraps up part one of our two-part episode on Trial of the Chicago 7. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash trial of the Chicago 7. I usually throw in some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For the trial of the Chicago 7, there are videos of Rennie Davis and David Dellinger in the time leading up to the protest, and a video of Bobby Seale talking about his experience in the courtroom. As I mentioned, this was the first of our two-part episode about the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7. We will be back next week on the other side of the Oscars to talk about the awards the film won or lost, and then we're going to get right back into talking about The Trial, and we're also going to talk about what happened to the Chicago 7 after the trial ended. How are we doing with this project? Go like us at Facebook and Twitter at the handle of that mostly suck. Or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can let us know which movies you would like us to use for an episode, and we'll share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone. <laughs>